0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series, The Triumph of the Lamb. As we look at Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 to 13, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, The Eternal Message of Three Angels.
1: I wonder if you've noticed something about so much of what passes for religion in our world. Recently, I was listening to an ad for a very popular ministry. You know, people gave testimonials about this ministry and how it's helped them get a better feel for themselves and how it helped them accomplish their goals and how it helped them understand that God was on their side and how it helped them deal with life's setbacks and how it helped them find the strength to carry on. Now, 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 look. I'm not arguing that finding inner strength is not important, but you can get that everywhere. You know, whether that's a TV show in which a therapist answers the difficulties that his listeners are facing in life, or the many therapists in our culture that that help us find the tools for coping, to the thousands of public messages that you're not a bad person, you know, and you've got to learn to love yourself. Well, that same message is a message that's entirely man-centered, It's the great religion of our day. It comes by a thousand voices, and it may be a message crafted from a number of different angles, but the central message is always the same. You're special. You're good. You're the center of the universe. Now imagine for a moment the following scenario. You come upon a person, a man or a woman, it doesn't matter, and they're standing before the Grand Canyon, or maybe before Niagara Falls, before the towering Rockies in Alberta, or the western shores of Vancouver Island as the magnificent ocean storms are sending these powerful waves crashing into the shore. But this man or woman has a mirror in hand and is for hours gazing at himself or herself. You know, they vacillate between whether they're beautiful or ugly and they they think about the plastic surgery that could erase a few wrinkles and they're transfixed with themselves. Will they ever get beyond themselves and forget themselves and see the grandeur and majesty of overwhelming and awe-inspiring magnificence in creation? But they never do. They they can't think beyond themselves. They say, you know, it's about me, you know. Now, that, I think, is an apt illustration of the self-oriented religion of our day. We should be talking about God and thinking. If I could only see him, I would see what is a priceless treasure. If I could but understand a being who simply spoke the word and the universe exploded into being. If if I could grasp the idea of an eternal God, omniscient, omnipotent, never changing, never growing, either older or wiser, for he is endless, everlasting perfection." If I could but understand righteousness, the righteousness of God, his love, his timelessness, a God who is spirit and not flesh, who is ever present in all places and yet distinct from those very places. If I could understand the interaction between love and holiness and to understand that, for instance, evil itself is subject to him and yet he remains untouched by evil, that he speaks only truth and cannot lie. So much of that is breathtaking, so overwhelmingly majestic that all of creation shouts glory. And yet the prevalent religion of the day wants to jam that self-centered, narcissistic mirror back into your hand and say, don't spend your time noticing him. Rather, notice yourself, you know, you're a special person. One recent book published came with the title, The Power of I Am. You know, Christians recognize those words, I am. That title belongs to God alone, but the words in that book, the power of I am, well, they're all about you, in which you say things that determine your future. You know, a mirror is put back into your hand, and you're supposed to stare at yourself and ignore the real I am whose glory fills the heavens and the earth. This is the most hideous thing of the contemporary religion of self. It worships that which is passing away. If you think that you're the great I am, well, here's a little news flash. In just a few years, oh, great I am, the veins in your legs will look like roadmaps, and those magnificent muscles will begin to sag, and your hair is going to fall out, and your eyes are going to go dim, and you will cease to be the I am and become the I used to be. You know, in our study of Revelation, we have seen up till now five different visions of the reality of spiritual warfare. Today we're looking at vision number six, a vision that includes the message of three angels from God. The three angels sent from God have a message for the earth. And once they've stated their message, we are left with a conclusion which which actually comes in the form of a beatitude. So let's begin with the message of the first angel. I'm reading Revelation 14, verses 6 and 7. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. You know, the passage begins with the words, I saw another angel. Well, the book of Revelation is filled with angels who are doing the bidding of God. There's an angel overseeing each church. There was an angel who cried out in heaven, who will break the seals and open the scroll? Angels are standing before the throne. Angels are blowing trumpets. There are angels fighting spiritual warfare with Satan. Revelation is filled with angels. And so the first angel here is flying overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to the earth. And so this is a vision in which God is summoning all the people on earth to repent while there's still time. But now notice the message. It's the message of an eternal gospel. Do you wanna know what it is that you're hearing when you hear a false gospel? You know, one of the markers of a false gospel is that it is a recent gospel. While I spoke of the kinds of self-indulgent messages that we hear today. Please understand that what you are hearing when you hear this is a gospel well-suited for this culture. For this time period, it is a gospel that not only does not have historical roots that that go back to the foundation of our faith, but it's also a gospel that will go out of favor when the self-indulgence of our day collapses and is utterly scorned by future generations. An eternal gospel is a changeless gospel, one that endures, whose message remains consistent. Notice also one of the markers of that eternal gospel. It proclaims, fear God and give him glory. God is not to be trifled with, he's a righteous judge. He weighs the deeds of every single human being and finds all of us wanting. One day we must all appear before the judgment, the eternal gospel repeats the words of Isaiah 64, verse 6, words written over 2,700 years ago, which say, all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. The eternal gospel includes Hebrews 9:27, which says, it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes Judgment. The eternal gospel is proclaimed in the end of Revelation, where a great white throne appears, and every human being is judged according to their deeds, which, as we have already read, are as a polluted garment, or in other translation, as filthy rags. If anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And That's why we fear God. The eternal gospel invites us to confess our sins and admit we are not winners— but were rebels against God, not good people, but iniquitous people, worthy of judgment. But God sent his son to take our sins and disgrace upon himself, to die on a cross. See, the eternal gospel invites us not to stare at ourselves, but to stare at the cross of Jesus and marvel at the grace we find there. And so the first angel in this vision invites the world to fear God and not the beast. It invites us to repent. And if the first angel comes appealing that people repent before the end, the second angel comes to announce that the world's confidence in itself is now over. So I'm reading Revelation 14, verse 8. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all of the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. That announcement is an anticipation, and it is given to us in what many have called the prophetic perfect. That means that biblical prophets can speak about future events in the past tense. Once God has promised something, it's very much like yesterday's newspaper. The event is as good as already happened. God has cursed Babylon because that city is a symbol of the wicked city of man. The city was first constructed as Babel, recorded in Genesis 11, as an experiment of life without God. By the time of revelation, the city is symbolic of all that is unholy. This city or this thought system has seduced all of the nations so that everyone has become drunk on the passion of her sexual immorality. What's the problem with Babylon? (laughs) It's this, God has condemned her and therefore she's already fallen. If you like this world and if you like life without answering to God, well, that is very bad news indeed.
0: I don't suppose it's difficult to imagine that one of Dr. Newfeld's most popular series is his teaching on the book of Revelation. Dr. Newfeld has taken an expositional approach to this series and the first two volumes including chapters 1 to 11. Now this month, for the very first time, we air The Triumph of the Lamb, volume 3, teaching chapters 12 to 17. Message titles include The Greatest War in Human History, The Woman and the Dragon, on Eagle's Wings and the Beast. Join us this month for the first airing of Volume 3. And if you'd like the series on CD for your own library, for a limited time, we'll be offering all 15 messages of Volume 3 for only $17, and that includes shipping and handling. Volume 1 and 2 are also available, so call us today for yours or to support this Bible teaching ministry with an important financial gift. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
1: The book of Revelation offers the most frightening picture of hell that are found in the Bible. Whenever I speak about hell, you know, I find a number of people who are deeply offended. But James Hamilton, I think, has said it as well as it can be said. He said, if hell is offensive to you, it's because you've not yet realized how significant God is. I think he's right. Those who are most offended by hell are those whose religion has been taken up in the mirror I spoke of earlier, a religion that is entirely man-centered. We imagine that God is there to help us accomplish our dreams, experience our potential, at least as we understand our potential. But John has seen three angels warning the human race. The first said, Fear God. Listen to the eternal gospel. Repent of your sins. Turn to Christ. The second warning is that Babylon has fallen. Why would you place your hope in a condemned city? That would be like buying property in Pompeii in the year AD 79, while Mount Vesuvius was giving off rumblings and signs that an eruption was imminent. Don't invest in that which is condemned. And so the first two angels have been flying overhead, warning the human race. Now the third, and this warning is simply a warning to anyone interested in self-preservation. See, I'm reading Revelation 14, 9 to 11. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured out full strength into the cup of his anger, And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. I want you to notice the two cups that are a part of this extended passage. The first was found back in verse 8. There the cup is from the wine of the immorality of Babylon. And once having drunk from that cup, there is another cup that is forced, that is, it's not a matter of your decision. The second cup is the cup of the wine of God's wrath. We'll look at the details of that in just a moment, but allow me to set the stage. Let's go back to the Old Testament, Jeremiah 25, verses 15 and 16. The context is that Jeremiah is prophesying against the wicked nations that surround Israel. Listen listen to the imagery. Listen to how God expresses himself to Jeremiah. Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword I am sending among them. I hope you see the image. The cup is the cup of God's judgment, the cup of his settled and righteous anger. Now let's go forward, and go all the way to Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. And there we find Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane just prior to his arrest. The text says, And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Again, look at the image. When Jesus died for you, He took the cup of God's wrath from your hands. I mean, the cup that you would have been forced to drink at the last judgment. He took that from you and drank it on your behalf and suffered horribly under the righteous anger of God. Ah, but but what should happen if Christ does not drink our cup on our behalf? What should happen when we drink the cup of Babylon? What What should happen when we receive the seal or the mark of the Antichrist? What should happen if we refuse the first angel and and reject the glorious gospel and choose rather to worship the sensuous city of man? And so by doing that, we become worshipers of the beast. Or to put it into language we can all understand, what if we become worshipers of Satan? Ah, but I could almost hear the protest. There are more than just two options, that is, worshiping Christ or worshiping Satan. Do you think so? Listen to sacred scripture. Ephesians 2 verse 2 says that all who are dead in sins, that is, all who are unconverted to Christ, are following the power of the air, the Spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience, and that's a reference to Satan. Unwittingly all follow him, says Ephesians 2 verse 2. And furthermore, verse 3 says, we are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So then revelation is not presenting us with a new idea. If you drink the wine of Babylon, you'll drink the wine of God's wrath. Indeed, that wine is poured full strength into the cup of his anger. Now, this idea, both of wrath and of anger, strikes some people as unworthy of God. I mean, how can God be compared to some drunken lout who comes home and gets enraged at the slightest provocation and causes everyone in the house to run for cover? Listen, the anger of God rises out of not his lack of self-control, but rather The anger of God rises out of a settled disposition in God. Want an example? Imagine someone living across the street from a Nazi concentration camp, where the cries of distress and the smoke of burning bodies fill the air. Anyone who does not, in those conditions, have a settled disposition of unbreakable anger, well, then they're not righteous— Sometimes the lack of anger is a sign of the lack of righteousness. God in righteousness is angry, and that is his settled disposition. Now then, from one shock to the next, anyone who refuses to repent, anyone who drinks the cup of Babylon or receives the mark of the beast will be tormented, reading verse 10, will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. So strangely enough, in spite of this kind of language, we still have some people arguing that, listen, all that hell is, it's just God leaving you to your own devices. It isn't their opinion. God's simply saying to us, you know, if you, if you want to live life without me, I'm just going to let you do that. That is not how the Bible describes hell. Listen again to verse 10, tormented in the presence of the Lamb. In Beckwith's commentary on Revelation, he says, the sight of the Lamb, now triumphant and victorious, would be the most poignant factor in the pain of the wicked because as worshippers of the beast, they had joined him in warfare against the Lamb. Well, perhaps that's it. But please don't pass over the truth in verse 11. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. Again, the language here is abundantly plain. Hell is not of a limited duration, it's eternal. Those who argue against an eternal hell must do so against the full weight of very clear scriptures. Again, I'm left with the message of the first angel. Fear God. Understand that it's not that we didn't give enough to the poor or that we haven't always been patient with others or that we've fibbed and told the occasional lie, no, no. The reason for hell is because failure to love God with heart, soul, mind, body, and strength is an infinite crime. Nothing could be more wicked than failure to bow before the one whose glory demands and necessitates worship. Failure to worship him who is infinite is an infinite crime. How amazing then that Christ in infinite mercy drank the cup on our behalf. What a glorious gospel. And so the message of the three angels respond to the gospel. Babylon is fallen. Hell lies just before us. Now then to the conclusion, Revelation 14, 12 to 13. Here is a call for endurance of the saints, those who keep the commands of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. You know, this section ends with a word of encouragement to believers. The first is simply this, endure. This is a word for all of us, endure. As difficult as it is to resist Babylon and the beast, as much suffering as faithfulness requires, know that the situation for unbelievers is infinitely worse than it is for us. The second word is for those who die in the Lord from now on, and by the way, that doesn't mean that those saints who died before this are not blessed. It rather means that those who fall prey to the beast and are killed for their faith are blessed. God is not going to forget them. Neither will he forget their faithfulness. And by hearing that, we know also that God will not forget our faithfulness. It strikes me then that there is no neutral ground. Either we cling to Christ or we cling to the dragon. There is no neutral ground how blessed it is to cling to Christ. Those who die in the Lord are blessed. They will rest from their labors. Their deeds will follow them. Christ will remember everything that was done in faith. He will not forget them. These are words of encouragement. Encourage one another with these words.
0: John, I'm thinking, particularly in this day and age, I guess the question is, how do we resist the sort of man-centered, self-centered theology? Yeah, I do think that, you know, we can give a number of principles, but, I mean,
1: overwhelmingly, I would say this. Once we get a glimpse of the greatness of God and revel in his greatness and find our delight in him, when we find our highest joy to be thoughts of God, I mean, at that point in time, man-centered theology just looks impoverished, it doesn't look like anything that even would slightly attract us. But until we've seen the greatness of God, well, then I think we're enamored with the greatness of self and we're gonna continue to revel in this man-centered stuff that is so prevalent in the day in which we live. So, you know, I think that some of these passages in Revelation will at least awaken us to say, yeah, there's something out there that maybe I've never understood before and I'm being called to revel in
0: God. Thanks so much, John, and and thank you for being with us today right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. So grateful to hear feedback from listeners as we celebrate 60 years of ministry. Friends of the ministry wrote recently to share how encouraged they've been over the years listening to the Bible teaching of Theodore Epp, how he was a great man of faith, vision, and faithfulness to the Word of God. And now they continue to listen every day with gratitude as Dr. Neufeld remains faithful to this same legacy. The Word of God does not change, and we continue to celebrate its truth and the good news shared for all mankind. Thank you for allowing us the privilege to continue a 60-year legacy of Bible teaching made possible through the prayers and gifts of friends like you right across Canada for six decades. Please continue with your gracious support as the truth of God's Word is broadcast across our nation. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit Back to the Bible .ca today.